tonight, we're going to look into intimate partner violence in rural communities. It's a topic we don't often address. It has always been a problem, one we don't often talk about, perhaps not enough. It is now the focus of a coroner's inquest in Renfrew County. That's in the Ottawa Valley, west of the nation's capital. It's a beautiful, quiet area. Um, This inquest is looking into the death of three women killed on the same day by the same man. Basil Barutsky had a known history of violence against women. On September 22nd, 2015, he killed Natalie Warmerdam, Anastasia Kuzik, and Carol Coulton in less than an hour. Uh, Warmerdam and Kuzik were former girlfriends. Carol Coulton was someone he knew. Uh, It is one of the worst acts of domestic violence in this country's history. Now, in 2017, he was found guilty of two counts of first-degree murder, one count of second-degree murder. In handing down the sentence, a judge called Barutsky a violent, vindictive abuser of women. Here is Valerie Warmerdam, the daughter of one of the victims, speaking to reporters following that sentencing in December 2017. I considered him family. He's the only person who I've ever called stepdad. And I, every, every little mannerism that is his... When I see it in somebody else, whether it's a, a phrase or a, just a way he stood, I, I, I immediately have to remind myself that just because somebody says that little saying doesn't mean that they're him, doesn't mean that they're like him. That's Valerie Warmerdam, daughter of Natalie Warmerdam, one of the three women killed by Basil Barutsky on September 22nd, 2015. Well, joining me now is Kirsten Mercer. She's a lawyer with Goldblatt Partners, who is representing a coalition of frontline agencies in Renfrew County that serve women living with gender-based violence. Uh, Kirsten, thank you so much for your time tonight. It's my pleasure to be with you. Thank you for uh, spending some time to talk about this important case. It really is something that we don't talk about a lot, which is which is gender-based violence in, in rural communities. And this inquiry really is going to try to look into that. But just a bit more about the case for listeners who may not be entirely familiar with it. There were a lot of warnings about this about this man. Were there not? Were there not at the time? Yeah, there there were. And uh, the, the story of this perpetrator, uh, whose name I choose not to use because um, I want to focus our um, attention on um, the women who he killed and not him. But the, but we do need to talk about him a little bit. And obviously the story of his violence goes back many decades. Uh, in, in my work um, preparing for the inquest that is unfolding here in Renfrew County, uh, I had the opportunity to look a little bit into the criminal history that goes back many, many decades. And um, this perpetrator was originally charged, as far as we know, with the first count of um, what was then called uh, domestic abuse um, against a girlfriend when he was 20 years old. Uh, I believe it was in 1977. So um, obviously, uh, and that wasn't a one-off incident. There were many incidents throughout the years, um, throughout a long marriage uh, and many relationships with other women. So you're right. Uh, there, there were warning signs. There was violence. There were charges that were uh, laid and prosecuted. There were other charges that were withdrawn for various reasons. And when uh, this perpetrator was sentenced to jail for the last time and then released, he was assessed at the highest possible level of risk um, for a perpetrator or an offender who's being released on probation. So it is absolutely the case that we, we knew that this individual was a problem um, and uh, he was being released into the community, um, something of a ticking time bomb. Kristen, I've often heard in this case uh, that the system failed these three women. Is that a fair assessment? Completely failed them. 
Well, you know, that's the purpose of the inquest is to sort of ask that question. And so I don't want to jump to the punchline. Uh, I'm not ready to state the conclusion. But what I can say in the work leading up to the inquest, and obviously I've been privy to some of the documents and information, um, and I can tell you that my clients know firsthand that um, the system... Well, ultimately, the system didn't protect these three women. So that's one form of of failure. Um, But also there were some gaps and some things that didn't happen that should have happened and some things that shouldn't that did happen that shouldn't have. So um, that's the purpose of the of the process that's unfolding, though, is to do that work and to ask those questions. And I think the answer is going to be um, some things went right. Uh, but some things didn't. And we need to look carefully at those at those gaps and those challenges. We need to close the gaps um, and we need to commit ourselves to never uh, never seeing a repeat of an event like this. Yeah, I, I guess this is stepping back a bit, but but just the purpose of the in- inquiry, because in these situations, we don't always have an inquest, but certainly in this case, it was felt that it was absolutely necessary to dig into this beyond the criminal trial. Uh, what was the point of the inquest and, and what is really the purpose? What are we hoping to learn here? That's such a good question, because I think a lot of people don't understand what an inquest is. Certainly, uh, you know, as I go about uh, day-to-day life here in Renfrew County um, and, and speak with people, including my clients uh, and the women that they serve, people don't know what an inquest is. So it's worth taking a minute just to explain that it's a process where the coroner, um, there, there are sort of two things that, that, that an inquest does. One is it a- answers a set of five questions, the, the sort of the who, what, when, where, how kinds of questions um, about a murder. In this case, those questions are fairly easily answered and uh, because there was a criminal trial and those facts aren't really in dispute. But the other phase uh, of an inquest is looking at recommendations aimed at prevention. And um, that is a much more complex task in the context of intimate partner violence and certainly looking specifically at intimate partner violence in a remote and rural community. And that's why this inquest was called. In many provinces, there are mandatory inquests in some areas. So the death of someone in custody, for example, uh, prompts a mandatory inquest. And then there are discretionary inquests. And that's one where the coroner's office or the, the chief coroner for Ontario in this case makes the choice to say, we're going to look more deeply in this case, not because we have to, but because we choose to. And it's a huge undertaking. So it really is an important process. And we as a society uh, dedicate quite a lot of resources to doing this work. What have we learned? I mean, it started yesterday. What have we learned so far? Is there is there anything to talk about in terms of what we've learned at the inquest up to now? Yeah, so we have two days uh, behind us. And, and day one was, I would say, most focused on <clears throat> grounding the work of the inquest in Um, who these women were. And so we heard from family members of two of the women who were able to so bravely come and testify. Um, And uh, we, in fact, we heard from Valerie uh, again, um, who uh, has been an incredibly important presence throughout the planning process. And she she actually sits with the lawyers and uh, has party standing uh, at the inquest and has been participating throughout um, the lead up to the inquest. So she testified on the first day, as did um, Anastasia Kuzik's sister, Zuzu. Um, and what they did, among other things, was shed a light on who these women were. Um, it's so easy to get lost in the details of the worst day of, 
of all of their lives. Um, but it's really important that we remember and that we take the time to honor who they were. And so we started the inquest that way. We also heard from a, a retired OPP officer who talked uh, talked through some of the some of those five questions that I described at the outset, the sort of who, what, when, where, how. And then today we spent the day um, listening carefully to four incredible experts who testified um, about violence against women or gender-based violence as a, as a social issue, um, about the um, shelter system in Ontario, about recommendations that have been made in past inquests. And then we had um, one of the representatives from my client who, who does frontline service work at an organization called Victim Services of Renfrew County to talk about what the issue looks like and the response looks like here in the community. I'm speaking with Kirsten Mercer. She's a lawyer with Goldblatt Partners who is representing a coalition of frontline agencies in Renfrew County, that's west of Ottawa, uh, serving women living with gender-based violence. So we're talking about an inquest into the deaths of three women in 2015 uh, and, and, and just what this inquest is hoping to learn to try to prevent it from happening again. After this, we'll talk a bit more about how the issue of, of violence against women, of gender-based violence in rural and remote communities is something that is important to deal with and certainly this case exposed why it is so important to, uh, to look into this more deeply and to come up with recommendations uh, that will work. That's after this. Lawyer Kirsten Mercer is our guest this half hour. We're talking about a coroner's inquest underway in Renfrew County in the Ottawa Valley, west of the nation's capital, into the murder of three women in 2015, killed on the same day by the same man in one of Canada's uh, most deadly acts of domestic violence. Uh, Kirsten, I guess for listeners across the country, there are some real public policy issues at hand here that will also be looked at in terms of how to protect, better protect women right across the things that all parts of the country can learn from with what's unfolding in Renfrew County right now. Yeah, that's right. Um, I mean, there are, I expect there will be many recommendations that come out of this inquest process, but there are a few areas that maybe I can point to. And obviously there's still many witnesses to hear, but um, you know, one of the things we know from many decades of work in this area is that there are um, important insightful recommendations that have yet to be implemented and uh, there's also things to learn from the people on the front lines in this community, including my clients. And so I can tell you a bit about some of those. Um, Sir, yes, certainly. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, first off, I think we have to do a better job of protecting and supporting women um, where they are and accessing the systems that they choose to access. You know, we spend a, a huge amount of money as a society um, operating a criminal justice system and you know, in many communities, domestic violence calls are among, um, are, are represent a big chunk of that. But the reality is most women don't access the criminal justice system when they're experiencing intimate partner violence. Instead, uh, they turn to other kinds of support networks, including community agencies like my clients um, and their own families and friends. And we don't do a very good job of allocating resources to the places where women turn when they most need help. So that's one area. The second area is to treat intimate partner violence perpetrators like the absolute lethal danger that they are. Now, that's not to say that every single person who's charged with an intimate partner violence type of offense uh, will necessarily escalate um, to murder. And obviously, uh, for those people who do this work every day on the front lines, including those people who work with perpetrators, um, we know that, that we can make interventions that can change the course 
um, uh, of a tragedy like this one if those interventions are made effectively and early. But in a case like the one with this perpetrator, um, as we talked about, decades and decades of violence and and many other confounding risk factors, um, I think I used the expression earlier that it felt like he was a ticking time bomb in the community. And yet... um, I think one of those gaps that we'll be hearing about over the course of the inquest is the way that he was handled when he was released back into the community on probation. Um, We know a lot about what danger looks like in these contexts, and I don't think we always respond appropriately given how dangerous these individuals can be. And then the last area that I want to highlight is a bit of a shift from responding to intimate partner violence occurrences when they happen to preventing them. You know, we, we know a lot about um, uh, what we need to do in terms of changing some of the norms and values that exist. And those norms and values exist throughout our society, both in urban and rural contexts. But there does appear to be some distinct values and norms that exist within rural communities. And, you know, this is not for me to say as, as, a lawyer from Toronto, but this is what I'm hearing from my clients who live and work in these communities every day. You know, we know that the police report that the incidence of intimate partner violence is 75% higher in rural areas. Um, We know that households where there are firearms are much more likely to see lethality associated with intimate partner violence. And we know that rural communities are much more likely to have households with firearms in them. We know that some of the factors that create risk and that perpetuate the possibility for intimate partner violence um, exist in rural contexts where people are isolated, where transportation, public transportation is hard to come by or non-existent, and where people are very far away from their neighbors. And we know that housing and shelter systems are woefully inadequate in these contexts. And so we need to shift our understanding um, of those norms and values that allow this kind of violence to be perpetrated. It's not new. It's been around for centuries. Um, But we need to to find ways to um, address this abuse and to empower people around those who are living with abuse, not to look the other way, not to minimize, but to understand that this kind of violence, even that violence behind the doors of a, in a private home, is incredibly dangerous for the people who live in that home, as well as for the community at large. Kristen Mercer, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate bringing us up to date on this important work, this important inquiry. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much for spending this time to talk about the work that uh, that we're doing here.